Hello. Hello. How are you? <laughs> oh my god, you look gorgeous. <laughs> you just say that. You just Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the COVID global economy to you. And the sound you just heard was the sound of lockdown lifting in Madrid. Spain had one of the toughest lockdowns in Europe. A friend of mine tried to take a walk in week one without a dog. She was quickly escorted home by a shouty police drone. But now the restrictions are starting to be lifted and we have a great report for you from our Spanish economy reporter Jeanette Newman as she reunites with friends and finds out whether her local restaurants can possibly stay in business, serving a fraction of the usual number of customers at tables two metres apart. We're also going to hear from our Nordic economist, Johanna Jensen in Stockholm, about the very different approach that Sweden has taken to COVID-19. This week, the main architect of Sweden's lighter lockdown policy admitted the death toll in his country had been too high. If he were facing the same crisis today, he told Swedish Radio he would take a tougher line. Whether it was right or wrong, Johanna says it's not true that Sweden acted as it did to protect its domestic economy. You can decide what you think in a few minutes. But first, here's Jeanette with the sound of Madrid reopening. And please do not adjust your sets. I cursed that sound every morning for about six years. A nearby shop owner rolling up the metal shutters covering his storefront. A screeching start to every day. But for two months during the confinement in the center of Madrid, where I live, the mornings were silent. So were the afternoons and evenings. The screeching started again about two weeks ago. The sound still grates on me but I have a bit of a soft spot for it now. It's become a daily reminder that the city and the broader Spanish economy are coming back to life. Spain's government is gradually lifting one of Europe's strictest lockdowns in four stages, province by province, and in 14-day increments. It's as if those of us living in Spain had been forced to go on a fast for two months. And now we're slowly reintroducing some of life's pleasures. First, a bicycle ride outside. Then, visits with friends and family. Eating and dining out. Eventually, travel. In Madrid, we're in the second week of what's known as phase one. Most noticeably, that means madrileños have been allowed to drink and dine outside at bars and restaurants. The first time since mid-March. The sounds of the city are slowly returning. That's the Sunday before we entered phase one. It's 9.45 p.m. on the Plaza Santa Ana, a square in central Madrid. And this is the next night in the same spot and the same time, but now with outdoor seating on the terraces at 50% capacity. We're also allowed to gather with up to 10 people at home. That's meant reunions with friends for the first time in months. I visited friends for dinner on Friday, our first gathering since March. Hello. Hello. Ahí está. We're in. 
The shared meals have been a welcome respite after the long confinement. Bueno, chicos, con champán, eh? This is a celebration. <laughs> the overpowering feeling, though, is one of whiplash. Spain is in national mourning for the more than 27,000 people who have died during the pandemic. And the country, along with the rest of the world, is emerging into the most severe downturn in living memory. Bloomberg Economics expects Spain and Italy to be among the hardest hit countries in the world this year, suffering economic contractions of 11 and 13 percent, respectively. That's fueled anger and despair. Some in Spain have channeled their frustration into a nightly cacophony that's known as a casarolada. That's the banging together of pots and pans, a common form of protest here. Every night for the past several weeks, people have been making noise from their windows, balconies, and local plazas at 9 p.m. They're demonstrating against Spain's government, a coalition between the center-left socialists and the far-left Podemos party. Protesters say the government responded slowly to the onset of the pandemic and that the emergency economic measures have been too little, too late. Now that we're allowed to gather with friends, many people seem to prefer to be outside their homes in the evening. So the intensity of the casaroladas has eased in recent days. But the frustrations and worries haven't. Oh, I have like a hundred messages that I have to check. <laughs> It's like two hours and then it's like, it's better not to <laughs> I know, it's better not be to away. Ophelia Marin opened three of her seven restaurants in Madrid last week. At this stage, only outdoor seating is allowed and only at 50% capacity. She says the authorities are focusing too much on the minutiae. They're missing the existential threat facing many of Madrid's restaurants and bars. We spoke at one of her restaurants, La Muca del Carmen. In one of the locations, we had um, 23 tables, okay? So now you have to cut by half. 23 by half, it's 11 and a half. So, okay, we said we're going to put 12. You know, Rounding it's a big, up, right? it's a, exactly, up, right? it's a big plaza. We have space, it's beautiful, not many cars, not many people. So the police comes and they removed one of them. So they had, they had definitely counted exactly how many you yes, were allowed. Yes, yes. But doesn't make any sense for who? What good that makes? Spain also requires restaurants to keep tables as socially distanced two meters apart. That's about six and a half feet. Ophelia says the number seems arbitrary. In France, social distance is one meter. In Italy, it's one meter in some regions and 1.8 in others. In Germany, 1.5 meters. The World Health Organization says one. Spain's government says the restrictions on occupancy and distance between patrons are necessary to ensure the country avoids new outbreaks. Restaurant managers say they support safety measures, but they say the current restrictions make it impossible to generate enough revenue to cover the cost of reopening. That's one of the reasons that more than two-thirds of the bars and restaurants in Madrid that are allowed to open their outdoor terraces have remained shuttered. The average bar size in Spain is around 100 square meters, roughly 1,000 square feet. The country's small, intimate eateries are part of its old world charm, but they're a distinct disadvantage in a socially distanced economy. 
Ophelia says she's worried that even when Madrid's restaurants can start serving inside, revenue will still suffer. Social distance, I think, is going to be till, you know, phase three, four, who knows. But social distance, I think, is going to stay for a while, and what, which that kills us. One option would be to step up online food deliveries. But that's not as common in Spain as in some other countries. Some restaurants have tried to pivot quickly to e-commerce, only to realize the commissions on existing platforms can be as much as 35%. That's untenable in an industry where margins are, on average, around 15%. Madrid's Restaurant Association estimates that 1 in 10 of the city's 20,000 bars and restaurants could go under by the end of the year. That's a big deal in Spain's economy. Discretionary spending is a portion of economic output, meaning what people spend on food, drink, and other leisure activities, is higher here than most other major economies. Also, restaurants and bars employ more people in Spain than in any other country in the European Union except Greece. That reflects in part the vital role tourism plays in the economy. Spain was the second most visited country in the world last year. Visitors are able to return starting in July, but hotel managers say they don't expect to get back to the glory days for at least several years. Spain's islands and beachside resorts are already receiving reservations for the truncated summer season. Many hotel managers in Madrid, though, say they're likely to remain shuttered through September. They won't be able to fill their rooms without the conferences and business meetings that normally bring people in July and August. Juan Luis de Lucas Martín is an exception. The hotel Claridge that he manages is among the few open in the city. The experience has been okay. Occupancy has been, well, horrible. Spaniards still aren't allowed to travel between provinces, with some exceptions. Those who've booked rooms at the Claridge have come to Madrid to see their doctors or lawyers or, in some cases, meet up with a loved one. I understand all my colleagues who have decided not to open until September because there will be nothing. We're open and nearly all the hotels in Madrid are closed and our record on the best day has only been 18 rooms booked. If more hotels were open, it would be absolute disaster because there's no demand. That's 18 out of 114 total rooms. A lot of workers in the restaurant and hotel sectors are expected to lose their jobs this year. That's one reason that Spain's central bank expects the unemployment rate to hit around 22 percent, up from an already high 14 percent before the pandemic. The sudden loss of so many jobs has led to long lines at food banks around Madrid. Yolanda Guaros Barcenia helps organize the one in her neighborhood of Aluche. When the virus came then, it was just disastrous. Uh, all this very precarious and very unstable job was gone completely. Yolanda and other volunteers feed around 1,400 families each week. All of a sudden we had people coming in saying, you know what, I have no job, I have nothing to eat, no money to pay the rent, no money to... nothing. Many who show up worked as part-time waiters, cleaning homes, or taking care of the elderly. But some neighbors are too embarrassed to join the queue for the bags of food. One day we saw somebody picking some fruit from the dustbin behind this fruit shop here. 
and we told this uh, man, why don't you come? We have so much food. And said, no, my wife doesn't want me to be on the queue. We don't want, we, we can't, we, we live here all our life. How can we be on that queue? So it's really humiliating, really, really. Some of the waiters and other workers have been temporarily laid off, but they still haven't received their furlough payments, so they can't pay their bills. Spain's furlough and unemployment system has been overwhelmed during the crisis. As the virus has slowed its spread and Spain's economy slowly reopens, Yolanda says the number of new people queuing at the food bank has also slowed. But the future still remains bleak for many. Ninfa Sanchez-Diaz had been working 30 hours a week taking care of elderly people in their homes. Since the pandemic, she's been working half that and isn't earning enough money to pay rent or feed her family. The future looks grim. If we have more quarantines and with social distancing and with the number of elderly people who have died, I don't know what kind of hiring or firing or jobs will be available. I don't know what's going to happen. We'll live for today and tomorrow we'll see. Amid so many uncertainties, one thing seems clear. The V-shaped recovery that economists had anticipated for many countries now seems unlikely. In Spain and elsewhere, it will be more of a slog than a snapback. Jeanette Newman, Bloomberg News. So Spain is one example of a European country now starting to emerge from from lockdown. But of course, we know in Europe that Sweden has taken a very different approach. And I thought it was about time that Stefanomics found out a bit more about that from our Nordic economist, Johanna Jensen. Uh, Johanna, very nice to have you back on Stefanomics. Tell us a bit about Sweden. I mean, I think we are all familiar now with the idea that Sweden has had a much looser approach to locking down the economy, that does seem to have helped sustain economic growth, at least in the first few months of the year. But how are things looking now? Yes, that's right. I mean, it's, it's, it's really true that Sweden has had a different approach. And the main difference, I think, is that uh, a lot of the measures that are, that are imposed here are voluntary. And I think that means that it may look a bit more lax seen from the outside than what we are experiencing here. But it is true that it is less strict than, than in most countries. If we look at, for example, that stringency index that Oxford, uh, Oxford University has compiled, uh, that index is around 50 in Sweden and it's 75 to 80 in other European countries. So, so for sure, that's less strict. And yes, you're right, Stephanie. It's been, it, we've had less of a hit to the economy in the first quarter, when, when most all the Nordics, uh, Norway, Finland, and also the Euro area countries took a large hit, some were down 2% quarter on quarter, Sweden actually managed to eke out 0.1% growth. But, but it will, we will take a hit in the second quarter, uh, I'm sure of that, but uh, it, it will probably be less, less uh, deep uh, than we're seeing in, in other European countries. And just thinking about global markets, I mean, we know that Sweden is a very uh, exposed 
uh, economy, very uh, involved in global trade, has been affected by the downturn in the global economy. But when you look at these sort of high frequency things, are you starting to see some some green shoots in terms of the external activity or is it too soon? I think no, not in terms of the external activity. Actually, if we look at the when we look at those high frequency indicators, it's mainly that they've turned for the better. Firstly, in terms of the number of new cases, we're seeing a slight downturn there. Uh, secondly, in terms of mobility, domestic mobility, that people are daring to go to the store, uh, which they didn't do before, or they they're starting to take their car to work. Um, they're still not uh, taking the subway, but they're taking their car to work. And we're seeing l- less financial stress. So these are the main three green shoots. But no, not in terms of external demand. And I think those effects will linger for longer. If we look at, um, it's not high frequency indicators, but it's relatively fast indicators in terms of purchasing managers index for uh, for the export sector, for example, we're seeing small fish hooks, uh, a slight, slight recovery, but quite an unimpressive uh, recovery in the last figures. So there's still a worsening uh, in terms of there are more companies seeing a worsening of demand, worsening of order intake, but the worsening has um, has slowed down. That's where we are in terms of export demand. Um- not wanting to stray too far off uh, economics, but I, I'm interested in uh, how you and your friends and family have, have thought about the, the, the so-called Swedish experiment. Uh, are people sitting in Sweden thinking, yeah, our, our government was very smart and very brave and they've taken the right decision? Or, or are, there, are there a lot of worries? Because obviously there has been a much higher mortality rate and a lot more cases than in your Nordic neighbours. Yes, definitely. I mean, I think in all countries there's been a debate on what to do and what not to do. And because this pandemic mixes economic reasoning with fear and worries about family and relatives. So there's been a lot of debate uh, among scientists here and among uh, citizens. But I think the the reasons for Sweden's laxer approach has not been Um, I mean, herd immunity has not been uh, a main reason, uh, neither has economics. It's more been an effect of the Sweden's constitution, which says that the government is not in charge here. It's the public health authority and they've um, they've taken the decisions. So and so that's been the thing. And also, I guess, a cultural thing that Swedes are. We're not uh, we're not used to uh, we're not imposing laws when it comes to uh, containment measures. We're we're instead we're asked to work from home. We're asked not to travel too far from our uh, domicile. Uh, so and people seem to be adhering to those advice. But you're right, uh, mortality has been higher. Uh, the last numbers show that mortality per million. Inhabitants here is around 440, which is four times higher than in Germany. It's less than in the UK and it's less than in Italy, for example, but much higher than in the Nordic neighbors and in Germany, for example. So, and that's been that's also part of the debate. And in fact, now the the government has just uh, said that they will um, open a uh, an inquiry into how this COVID nineteen pandemic has been handled. So the debate will continue, I'm sure.
That's very interesting. You said something I have to admit I didn't know, which is that this is partly about because the public health authorities have been the ones constitutionally in charge. Yes. So I think the outside, you know, the perception, and possibly particularly among people who thought that other countries should have taken this approach, was that Sweden had been very cool and calculated and was putting uh, a long-term view of the economy ahead of the... Uh, short-term human consequences, or at the very least weighing the two things in the short term somewhat differently. But the suggestion from what you're saying is this was actually taken, this was a a decision based on the uh, long-term public health costs and benefits. Absolutely. And I think a lot of this, I mean, as I said, economics has never been cited as a reason for this more relaxed lockdown. Uh, And the Swedish constitution prevents the government from interfering in the strategy of independent administrative bodies. That could be the Riksbank. Now it's the public health authority. So, uh, yes. And it's also uh, one, the main argument I'd say is, as you say, the overall public health, but also an egalitarian approach. For example, uh, Swedish schools, primary schools have been kept open. Secondary schools have been closed and universities have been closed but primary schools have been kept open. And the argument there is that it's much tougher for households that are less well off to care for children at home and keep them, get them back into the schooling mode once schools open again. And uh, so that's been an important argument throughout this crisis. I'm slightly worried that we're going to come to the same conclusion that we always come to about, particularly about Sweden, but also sometimes the other Nordic economies, that they do things better than we do, but we wouldn't be able to do the same thing. <laughs> they... that, it, it may be so, yes. <laughs> well, I mean, because the conclusion you might draw is that, as usual, Sweden has turned out to be quite uh, shrewd and smart in its approach, as well as having quite a, um inclusive attitude to its citizens, worrying about the welfare of citizens. But it does rely, as you mentioned at the start, on people not only having that sense of fellow feeling, but also doing what they're voluntarily encouraged to do as opposed to told, being told. You know, we can't help wondering that a, a voluntary approach to lockdown in the US and the UK would have been a bit less successful. Yes, one of my, we may never know, but also I think a worrying sign, though, is that high mortality rate. That's that's going to be, I think, once this year passes and once we see which countries have fared in total mortality, that will be like the final verdict over this, how we've handled this pandemic. Because as it is, as it stands now, this this relatively high mortality rate for Sweden must be seen as something that's that's not a success in this uh, in this pandemic. I love the idea, Johanna, of uh, the fishhook recovery. You know, we've been talking about the Bs and the Ws, but of course our Nordic, our Swedish economist talks to us about fishhooks. I like it. Um, Johanna, thank you very much. We will, as you say, we will need to wait a year to see really uh, what, how things have panned out, but uh, I suspect we'll have you on the programme before then. Thank you very much, Stephanie. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on how COVID-19 is turning the global economy upside down. And remember, you can always find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Special thanks to Jeanette Newman, Johanna Jeanson, Laura Milan, and Thomas Galtieri. 
Lucy Meakin is the acting executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. <laughs>